0: HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF.
1: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
2: Welcome. All right. Good Bible Friday. Friday. live.
3: Cheers. Cheers,
2: hey, gentlemen. Well, cheers. cheers,
4: guys. I'm drinking coffee because I have a oh, um, six-week-old baby. <laughs> oh, Attaboy. god! What you
2: say. Yes. <laughs> well, right, enjoy so. the coffee for the next 18 years of your life.
0: <laughs> yes, sir.
1: <laughs> That's roughly around the time I took up coffee. I met Mike <laughs> and Adam that uh, month that my firstborn, remember, Isabel was yeah. born. A couple of months after yeah. we partnered up, and then you, I never drank coffee. You guys would do these. 10-minute session coffees, I was like, I'll do it because I'm new, and I never stopped. And I don't know if it's because I have to deal with these two or with my daughter, but yes, there is some correlation between giving birth to a, to a newborn and coffee for sure.
2: Yeah, for sure. So just before we start, anyone listening, remember this is a uh, wide-ranging discussion with four dudes, uh, at the moment four dudes, um, uh, on, on YouTube. So this isn't investment advice. it's entertainment and educational and uh, you should get investment advice uh, somewhere else at the moment. And away we go. Whilst we're here, if you are listening, Hey, why don't you smash up that like button and share this one with someone you like. And maybe we try something a little new because we're going to talk about uh, MMT. And I wonder if we could get uh, some folks who are here or in, in the chat just to you know, want put in the number one if you're for MMT. Put in the number two if you're against MMT. And let's see wait, if wait. Uh, we should have a number we,
3: three for you don't okay. know what the fuck MMT is. Yeah, or number
2: <laughs> like, or number three, you have no I'm idea. I'm here to what, learn about, what, about what, MMT. Yeah, I'm that, here to that's learn. That's pretty about much MMT. everybody. Yeah. Well, maybe <laughs> right, yeah. maybe. I mean, some some people. I don't. Have, I don't
4: even know what the fuck MMT is. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. the guy that's supposed to be here to explain it. So.
2: So, so yeah, so pop that in there and maybe we can, uh, we can, you know, so we got a couple of twos coming in and I, I wonder if we can change those views or more inform those views. So people get more informed and might understand a little better. Um, and <laughs> getting some funny ones in there too. So that, Dave, that's you good to see. Dave, just to
3: be in the box, man. <laughs>
2: yeah, Dave or Dave Nadig refuses can to be in the box.
3: Inside the lines, just, just for now, please. <laughs>
2: So one is for, two is against, three is I don't know what it is, and uh, and uh, keep that going, and and we'll start the discussion. So where should we start, gents?
3: Well, let's let's give let's introduce Colin and give him a chance to sort yeah. of give a, a little bit about his background and what he's Sounds been doing great. lately.
4: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I run Discipline Funds, which is a I guess our new asset management arm from my private advisory firm. I've been Doing wealth management for started at Merrill Lynch back in the early 2000s. Spun off on my own, um, kind of naively, I guess, at the time, but it all kind of worked out. So I've been independent for basically, um, I guess, 15 plus years now. And uh, we just started uh, Discipline Funds back last year with Wes Gray and his team, and that's kind of our new venture. So it's kind of doing similar stuff to you guys, I guess, but. Um, Yeah, very. I'm very macro oriented. My background is um, really like macro econ and you know really high level finance. I don't do a lot of like really, I guess what we would call like really active investment management. I'm kind of more of like a a traditional financial advisor in that sense. I deal with typically like very conservative investors. So my typical portfolios end up being like at least a little bit. Um, more conservative, more bond-oriented, people that want income, stability. So we're not all equity-focused. So I end up building a lot of sort of planning-based portfolios that are really multi-asset. So I end up doing a lot of macro work in large part because there's just a lot of bullshit about the, the narratives in the macro environment, and especially in the last 10 years, I've done like an inordinate amount of work on understanding a lot of the really big picture stuff regarding like government spending and the big fiscal packages that have been implemented. A lot of work on quantitative easing and really like trying to focus on a a really first principles understanding of how this stuff works so that you don't just see, oh, the Fed is implementing QE. And they're printing money, and everything is gonna, you know, blow up tomorrow, and hyperinflation is gonna come, and all the kind of narratives that we saw when a lot of this stuff started mm-hmm. unfolding. And so, I was really lucky in that I happened to just in 2008, 2009, I knew a lot of people in mainly in Japan, weirdly, who had been through all of this. For you know, Japan had been doing quantitative easing and all these big fiscal packages to combat their own big asset bubbles in the early 90s. So they've been doing all this stuff for like 20 years. And I was able to basically walk through all of this with a lot of these colleagues of mine and learned how a lot of this stuff really works at like a first principles level. So, you know, stepping back and trying to be very objective about it and just trying to look at it through the lens of, okay, how does the accounting work? How does this money actually filter through the economy in a a, a really practical way and what is going to be the impact ultimately so that my focus was basically to to understand not only is this actually going to blow up the economy, but to be able to explain to people, OK, this is what these things actually do. And this is how much you should really be panicked about this or positioned this way.
1: So you almost do it. So, you know, the opening a... quote Go ahead, my. Anna. Just
3: so you know, hold on. Before you go, just so you know, the opening quotes can be just taking you completely out of context. Where you know you said you wanted to inform folks about the fact that it's not that QE is unleashed and it, you know, everything's going to blow up. and we're going to have hyperinflation, instead we're gonna, the opening quotes going to be QE is unleashed and everything's going to blow up and we're going to see hyperinflation, <laughs> right? That's that's exactly how we're going to position this conversation.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, so what I garner, Cullen, is that you are you're deep into global macro, so that you it's like the defense against the dark arts, right?
4: You yeah, actually I mean, have to
1: know it to be able to fight against some of the misinformation that exists. A lot
4: of it is a def- honestly, a lot of it is a defense against bad behavior for me. So I've kind of like if I as I've kind of traversed my career and stuff, like I'm pretty convinced that most people should put together simple portfolios that that will help them behave well. And if they do that, they'll do pretty well. It's the portfolio that you're constantly searching that is you think is optimal and typically out of reach, you know, the illusory perfect portfolio that everybody wants that nobody gets. And, you know, the the imperfect portfolio that you can stick with is way better in my opinion than the perfect portfolio that you can't stick with. So, uh, but so much of this, There's so many bad narratives and so much, I think, misinformation in a lot of the media um, that a lot of my job has ended up over the last 20 years being literally just like someone who kind of explains how this stuff works in a certain sense so that I can kind of help people be more comfortable with what's going on so that you don't think, you know, you don't read like some Richard Kiyosaki quote on Twitter and you know about how the market's going to crash every three months and say oh shit I need to get a hundred percent out of the stock market because this sounds scary you know so putting these things in perspective for me is just really useful for putting them in the not just the proper time horizons but the understanding them at like a really operational level so that people behave better because they feel more comfortable about what they're actually involved in
3: yeah you're um, you've written some really long foundational, papers that are publicly available on like SSRN. I remember reading through, I don't think I ever finished them, like it's like 80 pages or something of like deep fundamental first principles macro um, that you wrote back in like, I want to say 08, 09, 2010, something like that. And, um, and you've got a book, right? Pragmatic Capitalist that came out a little after that, right? When did Pragmatic Capitalist come out?
4: I think I published 2013, 14, something like that. So, yeah, a lot of this stuff that a lot of the really like big pieces of work that I wrote, like after the financial crisis, really, um, a lot of the stuff that people probably have read from me that they, you know, I'm kind of somewhat known for, I guess, um, came out really around the financial crisis. period. So the, the financial crisis for me was really like my. That was like my big aha moment about so much of macro because I, I came up from a very sort of traditional macroeconomics background where I basically learned like the type of economics that you would read from like a Paul Krugman or like a Larry Summers. Very traditional mainstream macro. And the crazy thing during going through the financial crisis was that a lot of these guys that I was talking to in Japan were like, no, 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 no. A lot of the stuff that the American economists are talking about it, it just doesn't work like that and i was like you know what are you talking about like so explain to me like what's wrong and like so some of the big ones for instance were like like that if you go through a macro econ course everybody learns like the money multiplier you learn that the central bank for instance if they create ten dollars of reserves the banks now have the ability to multiply this ten dollars into like a hundred dollars or something and this concept is in every single textbook in every single economics course that's taught, especially in the United States, and it's fundamentally wrong. And the Fed, weirdly, like just came out with a piece like this was like three or four months ago, I think, admitting basically, like, okay, this concept is really not how banks work. And so stuff like that was really crucial to understand because when the Fed was expanding their balance sheet back in 08-09, a lot of economists were saying, like, oh, no, well, what happens if all these reserves get out into the banking system and the the banks start lending all of these reserves? And, you know, I'm talking to these guys in in Japan and they're like, no, no, no. That literally is not how banks actually operate. And we know from experience that when the central bank floods the banking system with reserves, the banks do not lend that to the non-bank public and cannot. So there is no way this can cause hyperinflation the way that some American economists are saying this might. So Stuff like that was really, I mean, super eye-opening because it made you kind of question like, you're, I was like, holy shit, you know, I, I got this supposedly great education at this great school, and now I'm kind of learning in the real world that, you know, a lot of the theory just doesn't work
3: like that. Who are you reading in, um, you know, the Japanese school? Was that like, practitioners like Richard Koo, for example. Yeah. Richard Koo was a big one. I talked to Koo
4: a lot back in 08, 09 about a lot of that stuff.
2: Um, Did you get into Richard Werner a lot or at all?
4: Yeah. Talked to Werner a lot. Um, He's really great on all of this stuff. Steve Keen's really great on all of this stuff. Um, So, and that weirdly learning that stuff, learning the banking stuff because the banking was what really interested me because it, it, you know, is directly correlated to the financial market. So, you know, I don't really give a shit that much about like high theory and like, honestly, don't care that much about public policy because it's not really, you know, it's not really my business. I mean, it's, it's theoretically interesting, but it wasn't like directly, inter, you know, interrelated with like my job for the most part. So, um, but the banking stuff was like really, really, you know, directly aligned with not just like, my accounting background and my finance background, but it was, it seemed really essential to understanding the way that QE worked. And so, you know, learning stuff like that was just super interesting because, you know, you, it completely transformed my understanding, but it, it took me down this path of, of sort of learning what's essentially called post Keynesian economics, which is basically like the post Keynesians are the people in econ who were, they're kind of outcasts, to be honest. They're kind of like, the heterodox school that a lot of the mainstream just shuns off as like, you know, spouting nonsense to some degree. And they're the, they're the economists who they adhere really to like what they would say John Maynard Keynes really believed in. So a lot of the current mainstream economists what a post-Keynesian would say about them or even someone like would say about like a Larry Summers or even like a Paul Krugman, who's commonly called a Keynesian, they'd say, no, 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 no. He's like a bat. Those are bastard Keynesians, basically, that like they're people that they took bits and pieces of like the general theory and Keynesian economics and they intermingled it with a lot of like American economics or economics and like Milton Friedman type understandings. And they created their own sort of like hyper free market type of economics that isn't really the true Keynesian lineage. So, um, but I learned, I started learning about all these post-Keynesian schools and, you know, Steve Keen's like a big post-Keynesian. I, I met actually a fellow Canadian, Mark Lavoie, um, who is an, in one of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet Um And started learning all of these sort of post-Keynesian ideas and these very heterodox ideas, like the idea that banks don't lend their reserves to non-banks. And that kind of took me down the path of learning about MMT. And then I met all the MMT people. And what all the MMT people say, you know, I mean, it turns everything on its head. And that really is like you go through the whole learning process of MMT and you're like, wait a minute bonds don't finance government spending. Taxes don't finance government spending and you're like, "Holy shit, is everything that I learned about money and finance like completely wrong?" And so that's kind of like the path I've been on for the last, you know, 10 years of kind of, you know, traversing all this stuff and I've kind of I got to a point in like 2011 where I was like, "Holy cow, MMT seems like it's very, very accurate." And then started talking to Lavoie and a couple of other people that are Tom Pally and some people who are kind of critical of MMT and who have interacted with the MMT people for a long, long time. And they were like, yeah, you know, a lot of it's right, but there's some really, really highly theoretical stuff here that you cannot say is factual in any way. So that's kind of where I'm at now on all this stuff. basically, I think everybody's full of shit.
1: <laughs> well, let's yeah, let's yeah, exactly right. It's all it's it's all a bunch of stories. And what Mike always says is the only real thing is the uh, is food and shelter. Everything else is a goddamn story. Yeah. But uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about the MMT story for those that I'm, aren't fully uh, involved? Hold on, yet. hold on. What,
3: I, I I totally obviously want to go there, but but uh, before we go there, if you don't mind, Rodrigo, yeah, I'd love just to pause for a second because you sort of said what got you interested in this in the first place was the practical aspect of how this might inform how you approach markets and investments, right? And so, yeah. you know, that's your primary objective in gaining a better understanding about this and, and all your writing, et cetera. And you're not even that fundamentally interested in a policy. And I want to definitely talk about policy, even though that's not really your primary focus, but since your focus is on, the banking system, and by extension, capital markets, I think it's worth stopping for a second and sort of getting your sense of what is happening right now. I mean, it seems to me like we're undergoing maybe a fundamental shift in policy and how that's affecting the banking system. And so I think it makes sense for maybe you to opine a little bit on the underlying mechanics of maybe what we're observing here
4: what is going on right now um i have i have no idea like really honestly like i always tell people like as much as i've studied all this stuff and as much as i think i know about this like i think the range of potential outcomes in the next like six to twelve months are so wide especially today like with the news of putin like all this stuff everything that's going on right now like it all seems to be changing so fast and the COVID response was so big and so strange that I have no idea what's going to happen in the next like five years. Like I wouldn't be shocked if we had 15% inflation in 12 months. I wouldn't be shocked if we had deflation because the, the all these bubbles just kind of like, you know, lose their air. So, um, you know, at a really basic level, like what's going on, um, I mean, from a very high level, like I think that To me, like one of the big lessons coming out of the financial crisis was that I tend to think that the people dramatically overstate how powerful central banks are. And it's not to say that central banks aren't really powerful, but I tend to think that a lot of what the central bank does is really responsive to things that have already happened in the economy. So for instance, like with quantitative easing, Like people often call quantitative easing money printing. But when you look at the order of operations and you think of it from the Fed's balance sheet perspective, like, yeah, the Fed expands their balance sheet. But what they really do is they take a bond that was already printed into existence and they change the composition of the private sector's holdings with it. And they take that bond out of the private sector in essence. And so the real balance sheet expansion occurred when. The Treasury expanded their balance sheet running the deficit. So, I mean, if you think of it from the perspective of like, say the Treasury, instead of fu- funding their spending through a bond, say they literally printed like a deposit into somebody's bank account when they ran a deficit. If they did that, there would be nothing for the Fed to do after the Fed. There would be no quantitative easing for the Fed to implement. It wouldn't change anything for the Fed. There would be no bond to buy. There would be. You know, they would literally be if they did something like this. They'd be swapping a a like deposit for a like deposit, basically. Um, so, you know, things like that are interesting because I think we've, especially in mainstream econ, we've positioned the central bank as this super, I mean, uber powerful entity. That I think, coming out of the financial crisis, we all kind of learned. Well, the Fed, you know, printed a ton of money coming out of the financial crisis. And we still had a really weak recovery. If you look at Europe, you know, Europe ran quantitative easing at the same time. They didn't have the same size deficits and their economy was abysmal for, you know, the whole entirety of the next 10 years, basically. And so, you know, you can have these huge programs that people think are highly stimulative. And again, I'm not saying that they're not stimulative at all, but I think that they're not the, they're not the big bazooka that people often think they are and the, the really interesting thing about COVID and the response from a policy level was that you got all the same stuff essentially from the Fed. But the big difference was that the government spent, especially in the United States, the U.S. Treasury and Congress, they spent a shitload of money. And so there was this huge balance sheet expansion from the Treasury side that was matched by the central bank side but I think the big lesson, and we're seeing that now, you know, seven and a half percent inflation the the big bazooka is when the government spends in deficit. And to me, that was the big lesson of comparing these two experiences and being able to really, you know compare and contrast them. And so uh, uh, so much of what's going on right now is this weird environment where, You know, I think it's perfectly reasonable to argue that, yeah, there's this huge distortion going on because the government spent, you know, what, $3 trillion in deficit multiple years in a row. And we're only just getting to the point where it's kind of looking like a lot of that is being trimmed back.
3: Right. So if I were to sort of distill that um, that arc coming out of 2008, We learned primarily that the power of the central bank in manipulating interest rates and the volume of financial assets is that they can, to a meaningful degree, manipulate the price of financial assets and inflate or deflate them literally by purchasing whatever between... 20 billion and and at times $120 billion a month, not printing, but like buying between 20 and $120 billion a month of um, primarily government bonds. And at times, you know, buying corporate credit, right? (laughs) At various grades like they did in March, 2020. Um, But they don't really have much of an impact on the real economy, except perhaps through the wealth channel. Right. Yeah. Everybody kind of or the, the segment of society that owns assets feels wealthier because they've got more collateral against which they can borrow. And, you know, then they can spend right. Whether it's extracting yeah. equity from the home or companies borrowing against their balance sheets, they you know, we, we can borrow and spend. And I guess the signaling mechanism of um, low volatility, constantly escalating uh, stock market prices, which which
0: mm-hmm. people
3: sort of perceive as a signal that the economy is in good shape and that they are safe to, to spend, that they, they may not need to save as aggressively. Right. And over the last 18 to 24 months, we've seen a completely different channel of monetary policy. Um, and that is the expansion of the government balance sheet where the those excess funds were deposited directly in people's bank accounts. And so you've got this massive increase in private savings as a as a function. And feel free to correct me here if I'm if I'm not using the right terminology or whatever, but it seems like there was a massive shock higher in excess savings. And people then were looking at how they could spend some of that excess money. That was a positive. Yeah. At the same time, obviously, for a wide variety of reasons, including the fact that whole countries were shut down due to COVID and um, some efforts towards deglobalization, et cetera, impact the supply chains. So you had this potential for a major demand shock and a major supply shock and a major logistics shock at the same time. And all of those things are still working through the yeah. economy and everyone's going, I don't know where the, what the cause effect is, how large this effect is going to be or how long it's going to last.
4: Yeah. Well, that that's a great summary basically of everything that's going on. So like the, to me, you know, one of the really interesting things with like the deficit is that, and this is one of the things I learned studying this, the post-Keynesian schools after the financial crisis. You learn that government deficits add to corporate profits if households save So unless the money gets saved by somebody else in the economy, when the government expands their balance sheet, all that money ends up basically in corporate coffers. So like I had a million arguments with people back in early 2020 basically saying like this is like the stock market's going up and it makes total sense because all this money is going to end up right you know on apple and amazon's balance sheet basically because for whatever reason americans hate saving and the yeah the private savings rates spike but it does that every time that a crisis happens and you know, it happened in 08 and it comes right back down and Americans save the same amount of their income and the savings rate goes back to, you know, whatever the historical average is. It's actually been, you know, on the sharp decline in the last 20 years. But it, it in a weird sort of paradoxical way, everything that the government did most benefited corporations, which indirectly benefits households. But, you know, who really owns the corporations well the corporations are mostly owned by wealthy people um, so in a weird really paradoxical way this this huge stimulus that was really targeted at you know helping everybody it very disproportionately helped um,
3: the wealthiest people in the country
1: it's been interesting yeah, so that's there the was the um...
3: equation that you're describing right <clears throat> right.
1: Right. Where everybody, everything just floats up to the 1% and ultimately ends up with one person, assuming there's no checks and balances. And We could get, we get talk about that uh, a little later because there are checks and balances that, that help not have the Kalecki equation come to full fruition. And I think we yeah. had uh, Victor Schwetz last week talking a little bit about what the government's going to have to do in order to, to change how we distribute that wealth as we get to that point of 1% owning everything in order to minimize inflation and, and reduce the amount of uh, social unrest that might exist from that uh, wealth inequality. But you're certainly... I was look, I was listening to... Um, uh, what's this guy's name? I just had him up here. Uh, the president of FlexPoint, uh, Ryan Peterson, was talking about how he, he, he's um, done a lot of work on the supply chain issue. And we were, the question was, you know, what's going on? Why are the supply chains broken? And his answer was... We're up 20% year-over-year year in terms of demand for goods, and yeah. we're up 20% year-over-year year again, and our ports are broken. We're not technologically advanced, so we could only take what we've done on average for the last 20, and all of a sudden, you get a 20% excess shock. We're done. That's what's happening there, and it's all because people got money in their pockets. Like you said, the idea would be start out your own business, but maybe you couldn't do that in COVID. Maybe some people did. To create money out of that to create more money out of that money but the reality is it was purchases of goods that has kind of broken the supply chain right so i wonder what happens next if there's uh if we go back to normal purchasing patterns
4: yeah i I mean this has been like a really hot topic lately of you know what what's really causing the inflation is it coming from is it all just supply side stuff where this is like COVID related you know supply chains that are still broken or is it a is it all demand? And, you know, obviously it's, you know, the answer is always like a little bit of both, but I personally, like, I mean, it's impossible to break this stuff down and like actually understand exactly, you know, well, how much of, you know, like the used car market is due to just demand or just supply. And it's impossible to really like quantify that, but you can at least break down like the categories that we know in the CPI, for instance, that are, mostly COVID related. And when you strip all this stuff out and you look at the really the categories that are, are not highly COVID related, the CPI is still really high, even on those levels. So, you know, even when you, you people joke about how, like, you know, backing out oil and, you know, things like that, that are essential items in the, in the CPI, but are very volatile. And, you know, BLS makes a logical argument for stripping these out just to make the data you know not as as variable over time so they can better interpret it. But when you go X housing and X oil and X cars and you know all of the stuff that we basically use, the, the CPI is still high. So to me, I think that the the demand issue has been much more dominant over the course of the last especially the course of the last year um like I was I've said this publicly a bunch of times I was a big proponent of the stimulus packages in real time and in retrospect I think that at a minimum the last one was a mistake and I think it's easy now you know in real time I think you could you know you could make arguments, logical arguments for it. A lot of people like Larry Summers and uh, Joe Manchin, they were arguing in real time. For instance, the third stimulus was way too much. Um, now, I, I think that was around like the Delta wave, like when things were starting to look really bad again in, um, in like the middle of, of 2021. Um, but I think in retrospect, like I think there's a good, there's a really reasonable argument that we did way too much.
3: Well, yeah. did we do way too much or was it just way too general? Right and now we're sort of getting into some of the dimensions of the um MMT versus post-Keynesian versus neo-Keynesian. And I do think it's 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 useful to point out that much of this stimulus came out uh under governments that you know un- in no way shape or form uh were operating under the principles of MMT right? Like um, MMT is, is, is coming to people's attention. Now we're, 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 we're in firmly in the Overton window, but when these stimulus measures were enacted 18 months ago, uh, 15 months ago, 12 months ago, et cetera, no one was, was enacting them based on principles guided by MMT, right? They were guided by much more traditional, monetarist or post-Keynesian type frameworks, right? Um, And those frameworks were guided primarily by blunt tools, right? Um, You want to lower the cost of money, um, supply-side economics. And and I think that supply-side economics and monetarism have a lot more to answer for in the context of what we're currently observing than MMT, right? And I think um, those who are firmly um, against MMT as a framework are using the current inflation as a, a stick to beat MMT with. But I think that that's a misguided um, cause effect relationship. Like they're they're that's being misconstrued. Yeah. Is that a fair? Well, situation? here
4: you know one of the big things is. Um... It really, I mean, it's called MMT, modern monetary theory, because it is really theoretical at this point, because they have a very, very specific set of policies that they would implement if, if an MMT economist was in the White House advising or advising all of Congress on what to do, the government would be run very, very differently than it is right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people, they tend to read MMT and they basically just think, oh, this is just government spending writ large. And that's not really what it is at all. I mean, you don't even necessarily have to have a lot of government spending under MMT. You probably would because most of the MMT economists tend to be, you know, kind of like Stephanie Kelton worked for Bernie Sanders. I mean, like you'd end up right. with a lot of government <laughs> spending. Um, but it's not like some essential component of the theoretical framework. And so the big thing about MMT Um, you know, or, you know, backing up just a second, you cannot say that MMT is really right or wrong, because it's really never been implemented anywhere. I mean, in the the big deficits of the last few years, I mean, maybe they discredit, you know, big government Keynesian style counter cyclical policy to some degree, but they don't discredit MMT necessarily. Um, Like I've written recently that Some of the stuff that MMT economists have been saying in the last like six months is kind of worrisome. Like Kelton's been saying basically spend more, more, more all the way up. And, you know, at least for someone like me who was like, whoa, whoa, like we should have actually pumped the brakes, you know, back when Larry Summers was saying um, that sort of stuff scares me because it it seems like. Maybe there's signs there that the theory of inflation that they use, which has essentially been spend more to fix supply chains. Um, I don't know. I'm really skeptical of so, stuff like that. But
1: can I, can I take this opportunity? You just mentioned how MMT, if done as prescribed in the theory, would be very different than what people perceive to be MMT. What, is, what are the key aspects of theoretical MMT that would make that difference?
4: So the big thing, so to kind of like back up and explain basically what MMT is. MMT basically says that the government runs a currency monopoly. And so when they implement a currency, any fiat currency, um, it causes all sorts of problems in the economy, mainly that the private sector needs to obtain the currency to pay taxes and you need to get money to have a job. And so right off the bat, like working from like a very, very basic first principle perspective of MMT, an MMT economist would say that the second that a government like the United States starts the US dollar, they unemploy everybody. So everybody's unemployed at the base level and everybody needs to obtain money to be able to pay their taxes. And so it this is what ends up happening basically is that if, the, if there is some level of unemployment, an MMT economist would say that's the government's fault. The government left these people unemployed because they're not giving them the money they need to get to be able to even have an, a, you know an income. And so MMTers basically say that unemployment is a sign that the government hasn't either spent enough or hasn't provided people explicitly with jobs. And so this is totally different from like mainstream econ because mainstream econ basically argues that a level of unemployment that exists is probably optimal. So like in a a full employment economy where inflation is starting to get hot, even if you had like two or 3% unemployment, a mainstream economist would say that's optimal. We're using all of our resources in the most optimal way at present. And an MMT economist would look at that and say, no, we're we're not employing two to three percent of people that could otherwise be employed and being productive. And who knows where inflation would well, be you, if those people had a job.
2: You, so- you mentioned you mentioned a key point there on productivity, like if they could be employed productively. And this is this is the the challenge that I always have with, okay, so that last 3% of people who need to be employed, are there productive employment for those people? Or are we paying them to <clears throat> dig holes and fill them in again? And what are the implications of uh, unproductive? This never,
4: it's never been done before. That's one of the things that like, I, you know, when I first encountered MMT and there were all these, I was having all these discussions with like the founders of the theory. And I was like, how essential is this job guarantee thing? Cause this thing sounds like it's a big, a big problem potentially. And they were, uh, they were kind of wishy-washy on it. back then they didn't even really know, you know, how essential it was. Some of them were like, no, 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 this is, this is the essential framework that makes MMT, MMT. And others were like, like Warren Mosler. Um, he, he was saying basically like, oh, it's not really essential. It's, Of course we advocate for it, but it's not like essential to have it. And so since then, I mean, my view basically is that you don't have MMT without the job guarantee because the job guarantee, it's the core, it's the core policy that does everything interesting inside of an MMT paradigm. It gives everybody a job and they'd argue that because the government is able to set the wage inside of the job guarantee they argue that it can provide price stability too. So, you know, but this is, it's never been done before. So that's the thing, the big red herring for me is like, you know, looking at things from, or trying to always look at things from like an evidence-based perspective, I'm always like, well, where's the evidence that this works? You know, is there any evidence that this works the way that you think it does? And they can't really answer that question. So that to me is, I mean, it's pretty, pretty worrisome i mean personally i i suspect that a job guarantee would work in a country like the united states because the united states is just a hugely wealthy country that i mean it can it can support probably big programs like that and has historically supported similar type of programs um where this gets really messy though is that, like Like I always theorize like, well, what if Italy, what if Italy got tired of using the Euro and being beholden to Germans and said, you know what, we're going to bring the lira back and we're going to bring the lira back and we're going to implement a full MMT style regime and we're going to give everybody a job. And oh, yeah, we typically run current account deficits. And so we don't make as much stuff as the Germans. And so we're not necessarily as productive. And, you know, how would that play out? I don't know. I suspect it would not play out great. Um,
2: and is that because their, well, this, this economy is like, isn't big enough. Like it, it, it's, is it? You're, what, you why have loans
1: it? out in the in U.S. dollars and euros. At a, at a, if you're not productive <laughs> and you can't pay them, you have less control of what you can do, and it leads to the hyperinflation that let, that in Peru when we when yeah, I no, or lived, even I, like people like,
4: don't realize like you don't even need like a hyperinflation like. I mean, ten to twenty percent inflation is—it's awful. It 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 fucks up a lot of people's lives, um, and you're starting to see that—you know—some signs of that at least in the United States right now, where people, especially people in like the the middle class and lower middle class, they're starting to to really see this impact them in a meaningful way, and they're saying, you know, you know, this is no bueno. Um, so consumer centered, okay, but again, we're not.
3: We're, we're conflating several things. Like, we're again. I want to make sure. This is why I made. I've stated this really clearly in the beginning. What we're observing now is not a result of MMT. And if MMT oriented economists were in charge of setting fiscal policy, we would have an extremely yeah. different macroeconomic environment than we have. You're right totally now. right. Yeah. I, so no, I, let's I, not say that MMT is is causing this inflation or that we should extrapolate the current the current inflation and say MMT would make it worse, because yeah. I feel like we have no evidence but, of that either.
0: No, it I, think hasn't been I, done. I think
3: that's totally right. But I do think I think if if
4: President Kelton was in office, I do think we would have done all the same stuff and probably much bigger because she was she's on record, for instance, in the last like three, six months saying that we should have spent a lot more to fix supply chain. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that like, God, we might've passed a green new deal in the last, you know, six to 12 months. We may have, we definitely would have passed build back better.
3: Um, the devil's in the details, right? Like just fire hosing money into the economy by, by creating deposits in individual bank accounts is different than saying we're going to, we're going to, Create a build back better policy. We are going to target the training of teachers and the refurbishment and development of um, new an, a, a brand new school system or a brand new education system. We're gonna we're gonna create an institution that is going to re envision education for the 21st century in 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 light of current technology, and we're gonna. Bring people in the, from the technology sector in here, and we're going to and we're going to find efficiencies in the education system. We're going to create a nursing reserves, yeah. So that you know we're we're going to have the reserves. We're going to have the the medical reserves, or we're going to a- have an adjunct to the reserves that are that's going to train up nurse practitioners and nursing staff um, who may not work as nurses, but. Uh, can be called in to work as nurses in the event that we have another pandemic-like experience. Uh, you know, there's there's a, a wide variety of different infrastructure. Like, I admit you can't fire hose a bunch of money into the development of bridges and, and highways and public transit, et cetera, without being thoughtful about the pacing and the type and the location, et cetera. But it's, it's not like there aren't um, policy objectives that would represent a massive productivity improvement in developed markets. And it's not like we don't have a um, massive amount of um, unemployed people. Like what's the labor participation rate now versus what it was in 2008 or what it was in 2000? There's a lot of theories about why we have such a large amount of people who are just walked away from the labor force. But there are, there are incentives or disincentives that we can use to drive people back into the labor force. You know, Warren Mosler, I just listened to him talk about um, an initiative to completely eliminate income taxes because it represents literally 15% of the economy so 15% of of productivity workers go towards doing people's taxes or you know corporate taxes hmm. or or whatever and it's it's a pure drain on the yeah. economy you could take 15% of workers redeploy them as nurses and doctors and Well no these are these are um, make work projects you and,
2: you need you need those employees in the IRS you need those employees this is a wonderful you know make work project. Let's have some taxes. Sure. So let's, let's make them really those complicated. Resources.
3: Currently they're <laughs> unproductive. So let's sure. redeploy them to productive areas of the economy, right? Let's train them up as teachers, nurses, programmers, um, physio. I don't know, like whatever there's, there's productive ways that we can utilize these resources. They're not currently being utilized. Like another 25% of the economy is essentially involved in financialization in the financial sector. This is a completely unproductive sector of society. Let's retrain them or redeploy them in, in productive areas. Adam, what mind, are you saying right? about all of us? Are you saying that <laughs> 100% are you saying Oh yeah, that no, that all workless Food and i food and to go work in a proteomics company on machine <laughs> learning or something. Your, speak for yourself, just, sir. <laughs> but, but seriously, like, shuffling money. what about what I just said? <laughs> What I just said, I think, is well encapsulated in the MMT doctrine. What about what I just said doesn't make much sense? I think it
4: makes total sense, honestly. I mean, I I just don't – I don't know, you know where's the evidence that this can be implemented in this but where's the evidence? Like, very to, like, targeted – any- Like, I think – like people criticize, I think, the way that we kind of just fire hose stuff out or like like interest rate changes. Interest rate changes are a hugely blunt instrument, but the reason that I think the government does these big blunt policies is because the government just isn't that great at doing very targeted, precise things. And they're, you know, they can't they can't pick the winners. And so they kind of just say, look, you know, you get a low interest rate, you get a low interest rate. Everybody gets a low interest rate you know, and how it filters through, it just- But they have picked the winners, right? They picked the winners to be those with capital. Yeah, I mean, all this stuff ultimately, I think, I mean, I don't know how, Um, like I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday about like, you know, how do you do all of this stuff in a way that, like if you want to, if you have a hyper hot economy that you need mm-hmm. to kind of run some sort of like countercyclical policy against, to try to dampen demand. How do you how do you dampen demand without hurting people in the middle class, for instance? The middle class is the, you know, they're the big consumers, basically. They're the people with the, the highest marginal propensity to spend. You know, you can't implementing a wealth tax, for instance, on you know, guys like Bezos and, and Elon, they don't they don't like that stuff, but they don't really give a shit about it because it's not really going to change their life that much. It might change you know, their multi-generational estate plan or something silly like that. But like, they're not going to suddenly like peel back demand enough that like, it's going to make a really big, meaningful impact on aggregate demand. And so, you know, how do you do this stuff in a way where you, you target it, but it doesn't hurt the people that really like kind of can't afford to be hurt. And I don't know. Colin, who
3: is the middle class? Like the middle class or the teachers, the doctors, the... Um, you know, the, uh, people, the, the factory workers, um, like you're creating demand for like infrastructure projects creates demand for engineers, construction workers, some, you know, uh, truck drivers, um, a single payer healthcare creates massive demand for new nursing staff, new, uh, physicians, New orderlies, like there's, there's lots of different ways that you can spend it into the economy. Let me put it a different way: that you can invest in the people and um, infrastructure in an economy that that benefits the middle class. Yeah, I mean, I totally, I
4: totally agree with that. I, I mean, like I've actually, God, I mean, a lot of people think of me as like a. You know, money printing fiend because for basically like, God, almost probably 10 years coming out of the financial crisis, I was like, the deficit is way too small. And that was, I mean, that was my big message coming out of the financial crisis was that I basically was saying QE, and this was the lesson from coup basically, QE is not going to fix this. All the stuff that monetary policy is doing, not going to fix this. You need to run big Mm -hmm. deficits. And that to me was like, that was the big lesson from reading you know, the Holy Grail and talking to Ku and all those guys. Um, and so like for years, I was like, this is the, like running a big infrastructure program in the United States, no, a total no brainer. Um, so I, I don't, I mean,
3: you know. So there's a lot of comments in, in there. The, we um, were gonna
4: fight on this, on this video. And I know we're the, violent the other <clears> instead.
2: The, the the other thing though is why do you, why do you think that the the government from a centrally planned location if given all these powers is going to select and implement without conflict of interest all of these the programs mike but There's they don't we have, have to no come at it with eyes wide can. open
1: right if you go to a if you go to any country any like i see it in south america right everybody that goes in to do business in south america knows that 50% of the money is going to go to some Two or three politicians and the other 50, 25% is going to go to some corrupt uh, corporate entities. And then 25% gets into the project that was originally envisioned, right? But the 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 other option is continuing to financialize the economy and provide these signaling of incentives for people in high school and university that say, well, I could become an engineer, but why don't I try to do what Rodrigo is doing and try to make money on money? right and i'm not so sure that that is what we want as a society i think it it's the signaling leads to the wrong things that type of policy as a on end all leads to financialization rather than a even a, a small move in efficiencies within whether it's infrastructure or um, uh, shipping or nurses or whatever the case may be right you gotta you gotta balance out the levers that the government can pull and i don't think we have right and and mmt at least I, I, provides sure some that sort that of that framework answers, to do
2: that right i'm not sure that answers my question so you you're saying that if the government spends and 75% goes to waste don't we already have that system i mean uh,
3: <laughs> no no like, mike uh, that's exactly we we i i think i think we what we need to acknowledge is that we are moving toward a political um, zeitgeist that will mandate further expansion of fiscal balance sheets. Okay. I, like this, I think my, anyways, the, the the fundamental pretext I'm operating on is that we're already moving in that direction. So the question is, if we're already moving in that direction, what is the best way to think about fiscal expansion? At the like stop the moving, Keynesian. That <laughs> no, that's not a thing. So, <laughs> <Well, laughs> right? like, that's uh, a whole The, point. the other that's direction to me is worse, by the way. The other that's direction a good to me is worse. Though. Like,
4: I've been thinking about this a lot in the last, like, especially the last like, few months. Do you, like, six months or 12 months ago, I would have said, Adam, that you're 100% right, that it seems, like the, it seems like the Bernie Sanders world is coming to all of us. And I think in the last six months, I think that the, that train has come to like a screeching halt. Um, So I'm kind of curious, like what you guys think, like, you know, how likely is it that that world is actually still coming our way?
3: Well, it it may not be under the Biden administration. In fact, I, I'm now leaning and I'm with you. We actually had conversation. I remember conversations on this, Channel three, six months ago, where I was convinced we were going to get build back better, we were going to get a Green New Deal. All that came to a screeching halt. Now it looks like you know the the Dems are absolutely going to going to lose um, their representation in midterms, and we're we, we're now into the gears are are just grinding now, and we're not going to make any progress. But whether it happens in this term or the next term you know, in, in 2024 or 2028 when AOC is president, let's be prepared for that, is you know, uh, is certainly up for, deb- for debate. But it's coming because- You think, I think it's coming in the long reached, run, no matter what. Yeah. It's, we've reached the end of the cycle where the median voter now is feeling such a level of Maslowian disappointment with the financialized economy and being left behind yeah. That we will, we will be, we will shift in that direction one or the other. The question is, do we shift in the direction towards fascism or towards communism? And that I, I do think that that is an interesting question. That you have to, have to. Can you at least go socialism?
1: Jesus Christ! Like our viewers just went down by eighty <laughs> percent. We're talking to Americans here, Adam. We can't I'm do that. Not, you, I'm hoping we're not getting. This is not a Canadian I don't want either audience. of
3: those outcomes. I'm not I don't
1: don't like either of those outcomes. (laughs) It's a little much. I think
3: those are the those are the polls. where we go.
1: No, I mean, socialism would be probably closer to given the 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 um, foundations of the United States of America. I mean, saying that 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 is even a possibility in our lifetime is nonsensical to me. Right. Are you going to get a more social economy? It's already kind of social. They don't like to say it. Right. But Americans have a very strong social system, maybe not as uniform and as robust as other places in the world, but they do help, you know, a lot of um, different areas of social strata. But I think, generally speaking, I agree that we are headed towards something. We see the labor participation rate growing bigger and bigger, or, you know, the the lack thereof. And you have, what are those people doing? Somebody needs to look into what their day-to-day activities, are they living off of the food stamps? Are they living off of the financialized market and crypto and thinking that they can make it that way long term? And when that doesn't go their way what's going to happen to social stability what is the government going to have to do if there isn't work back for them because they've been out of commission for two or three years is it universal basic income right how are we going to deal with the obesity epidemic how are we going to deal with the drug epidemic in the united states like all these prog- all these things don't happen through um you know corporate benevolence they they happen through centralized planning and there is going to be support, I think, for some sort of government to be able to facilitate that through some sort of targeted fiscal spending. I just, I see us going in that direction and I don't see you know, automation and all the th- fun things that we're dealing with, right? The efficiencies that we're gonna be able to garner when I, Victor Schwetz had, uh, had said last week that you're gonna, you have a glut of human labor, human capital that's bringing our uh, efficiency down. Once auto- we figure out automation and a way to get rid of all those people, we have to put them somewhere We're warehousing them, and that's bringing the productivity down. You have to put them somewhere, so productivity goes way up. The human race gets whatever they want, but you need to find you need to be able to finance that.
2: Um, The the application of socialism is the way it's going to go, and maybe so. Um, I think there's you know there's an argument for a, a solid welfare state, whether that's UBI or some some manifestation of that. But we also have the compounding factor of less and less of the workforce actually has the skills to participate. Yeah. in work that's relevant to the new economy. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to have a larger and larger part of the economy or a par- part of the work participants that don't have relevant skills on top of what's going on and narrow, they narrow skills. Like. Correct.
3: They also well, are but needed, but right?
1: just so that just so that we're clear, I know this seems like dystopian and all that, but there is I'm super excited the human race's ability to finally pursue their their, uh, hobbies and goals. And like, if you want to be the best goddamn ping Everyone's pong player, you tick-tocker. can now dedicate, you can dedicate your life <laughs> like 10 hours a day to being a fantastic ping pong player where you feel fulfilled, where you're winning these tournaments. And it's like, there's, this is at the end but of the day, you, I don't, I don't all know. of this stuff I, leads I, to leads to all, you being able to have more free time to do whatever the fuck you want. And that's not a well, bad thing.
2: You're all, you're going to be competing with other people who have the same thing. You're going to be no that's, more successful. No, there's just going to be exactly, bigger pool. No, but you're you can compete, compete you can competing and failing here, the thing right? you
1: love.
4: Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're at the terminal argument this. here, right? So oh, yeah, who, yeah. Who's the best ping pong player here? Oh god. I'm
1: I chose right. the wrong I chose the wrong sport. It's Adam surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> but he Honestly, did he did when we started playing, athlete. Athlete. Yeah. when he started playing a year ago, he
2: did like pull both his calf muscles, which is <laughs> I don't even
1: know how that happens.
2: <laughs> but I do, I do buy. It's so one of the revelations for me as we've been talking is this idea of MMT and and this full employment promise is has a productivity caveat to it. Like you, you want to put people, you want to have maximum employment, but maximum productive employment. <clears throat> I think you would like to have the the productivity of the overall economy improve. As you uh,
1: now, you got it. The productivity you, of the overall economy, yeah, needs to improve. So, improve, there's a question of whether we need really human hard. beings to do that. And like I the, can buy a next for economy, that. right? Um, but anyway, look, you know, I just, can, I, can I just go? Ahead. I, I just want to ask so, look, this is a very long term view, and things are shifting in one way or another. I mean, at the end of the day, we're in the business of, of managing money, right? So, Colin, I'm, I'm curious. You know, you've talked about how you you're defense against the dark arts. You understand it. You you it helps you on the behavioral side, but ultimately you have to put something together that makes sense. Um, How do you think about portfolio construction in this world?
4: I mean, I'm not doing the sexy stuff that you guys do. Um, You guys are. Could I could I could I maybe
2: sharpen the pencil on this question because I wrote this down earlier when you said here's the range of outcomes for the next 12 months and they are you know three percent deflation to 15 percent inflation and so how do you how do you manifest some sort of portfolio hedge or how do you build the portfolio given those outcomes
4: yeah i mean it god i mean so I, I work i mean primarily with individuals so i mean like to me i mean so much of this stuff is super personalized like you know God, I mean, starting with like the inflation question, it's like, well, do you own a home or do you not own a home? Because that's a huge, huge difference in how well hedged against inflation you are right off the bat. And so this question is is different for everybody. I mean, me personally, like my foundational starting point for any asset allocation is the global market portfolio. So looking at, you know, like I'm not like a big adherent of the efficient market hypothesis, but- if you wanted to put together something that just was really broadly diversified and, you know, pretty hands-off, you know, long-term oriented and covered all your bases, well, that's the portfolio you would buy. And I think that that as a starting point, you can then start to like, you know, customize and tweak and twist it to like fit somebody's personal needs. But for me, that's kind of always the starting point is that like, as a, as a framework from a macro perspective, Um, You don't need to like get brain damage trying to pick and choose where is the perfect optimal place to be in the market. I mean, I'm a big advocate of like all weather portfolios where you just kind of, you know, you sling your money around in a lot of different baskets and you're pretty well hedged in some way all the time. Um, So. I know that's kind of a, a lazy, like it's not a- it, It's
2: not speaking our language, it's, baby. It's, it's, it's speaking very our language. thoughtful. The, the, the challenge then becomes the tracking error that you talked about at the very beginning of the investor needs to follow a portfolio that they can follow, not necessarily the most efficient portfolio. And I guess that's what you're saying is you've got to take those concepts and then make them bespoke for the individual.
4: Yeah. Well, that's the hardest part about asset allocation is that- you're, and the, it's really the essential guiding principle of diversification is that you're always going to hate something in your portfolio and you, and you should, you know, like, like right now I see a lot of people, they look at the bond market and they're like, the bond market is awful or like holding cash. People are like, how can you hold any cash in a market where the inflation rate is this high? And it's like, well, you know, you say that now, but you know, like who knows, you know, if, if, Vladimir Putin decides to drop a nuclear bomb on Paris in, you know, five years, um, you know, some weird shit's going to happen. And you're going to probably feel really good about, you know, some of these more defensive, um, you know, kind of safe haven type assets that looked really awful. And that's, I mean, that's the other big, big lesson from the pandemic to me is that nobody has any fucking idea what is going to come down the pike that, trips you up i mean that's the the thing that you know i spend spend so much of my time thinking about like macro econ and what are the big risks out there and you never know about it until it actually lops you upside the head and it it always tricks the vast majority of people so you know it's not a i know it's not like a super sexy approach or anything and i you know I could sit here and like, say like, oh, I think value is coming back and I would prefer to hold gold. And there are things that I would probably tilt towards that, you know, I have a preference towards personally versus other things based on my opinion. But um, in a general sense, I think we all kind of know at this point that like, you know, nobody really knows what the fuck any of this stuff is going to do in the, in the short term.
2: I think you make a great point, which is what's your starting place, right? Don't start with having all the fancy fringe stuff around the edges that you own the lithium ETF or this thing or that thing. Start with the idea of let's get a large, well-diversified portfolio, whether that be risk parity, all weather, global market portfolio. And then now you can start to inform that portfolio and tilt it to, to some of what your expectations might be.
4: Yeah.
2: And and what your go ahead.
4: Like kind of a a more sort of like core satellite type of approach. I think, I mean, And you can even, like, like, I've become a big advocate. I'm so, like, behavioral-based that, like, I have clients sometimes who come to me and they're like, they're like, Cullen, you know what? I just want to fuck around with, like, 10% of my money. And I know I shouldn't, and I know it's stupid, but it makes me feel better about what I'm doing. And it makes me feel involved, and it makes me interested. It makes me watch the news and stay more on top of stuff. And I I totally know I shouldn't be picking these 10 stocks that I found on, you know, thestreet.com or whatever. And I'm always like, yeah, that's stupid. You shouldn't do that. But if it makes you feel better about every the other ninety percent of your portfolio, and it makes that other ninety percent perform, you know, better than it otherwise would, then great. Right.
1: No, I think we're. I'm a big fan of the uh, Hippocratic Oath of portfolio construction. Right. First, do no harm. Right. I, when people come to me and say, "Well, what should I do?" I was thinking about these ten different themes and whether I should go long and short. I'm like, listen. Like, who are you competing against here? Like you, you understand that you have a day job, right? Uh, you are going to hurt yourself more than not. And rather than do that, you should start with one all weather approach that can protect you against inflation, deflation, high growth, low growth. You know the, the risk parity framework that we always espouse here, and then really assess whether you have an edge. And if you do have an edge, grab that ten grand or ten percent of your portfolio and try it out. See how easy it is, right? Because yeah. You know, maybe he'll be happier ultimately doing it, right? But most people end up coming back to the Hippocratic Oath of portfolios and being balanced and then recognizing that you're always going to have big winners and big losers. And even today, I was having this conversation with a very thoughtful advisor. It was like, okay, I'm bought in, you know, we, I was advocating our strategy for like high inflation periods and bear markets is probably a good bet, but we're probably going to underperform in a recovery against the S&P or the Toronto Stock Exchange. And uh, he was like, "Oh, right. So what you're saying is that I should tilt it at the bottom of bear markets towards equities, and I should tilt away from it, and when it's um, uh, when it's about to, to drop." So then I went and I showed him a good old fashioned bear market, not the bear markets that this generation knows about, but you know, 2000 and 2003. I counted ten bottoms, right? Where if you're living it, you would have been like, "This is the bottom." Nope. Nope. This is the bottom, and it just went yeah. down again and again. My, that's right? my biggest worry. It's right really now. tough to 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 be a, a you know standard investor trying to figure out when the bottom is going to be or when the I I've been getting it wrong the wrong way for the last ten years. Or right? I've been calling the the top. Just look at my Twitter profile. Every other week, I call the top. Right, so don't don't listen to me. Uh it's just you're it's the, an you're interesting You're the
4: richest kiasaki of this group. <laughs>
1: That's right.
4: <laughs>
1: no, a few us here. probably
4: probably the richest. <laughs> probably the richest too, so <laughs> makes sense.
3: What about home prices? So you start with like you Yeah, go. Ahead. Oh. Well, We're you can go ahead. I like the other like way A, you, a um, you know, do you own a home or not as being a key question to ask about your asset allocation. So, walk me through through your thinking there? Because I think it was mentioned in the context of inflation.
4: Oh, like just looking at, you know, in terms of like inflation hedges, like, you know, real assets are at least homes in particular are a pretty good inflation hedge in the long run. So for me, like there's a big difference between somebody who rents and somebody who owns their house because you know, like if you look at even shit, even the last 24 months, like the difference between somebody who owns a home in real terms versus somebody who rents is a huge difference now. Um, so like taking this sort of holistic, you know, portfolio approach and looking at somebody's not just their finance, you know, of course, you know, you want to focus on financial assets, but, you know, people's real assets make up a big, big chunk of the vast majority of, of Of overall assets in the first place. So, you know, commodities in the long run, um, it's different. They tend to just sort of track the rate of inflation. Whereas like, you know, real estate is a really, really specific type of instrument in that it it tends to just be a depreciating block of wood on a very (laughs) scarce piece of land that we're not making more of. Um, And so, especially in the United States, like you know, kind of going back to our whole policy discussion. Like some of the dumbest, um, the dumbest stuff going on in the United States is the the shortage of housing and like the the number of policy errors that you could look back on in the United States um, and and complain about in the real estate market is like it's like an endless list.
3: Um. So. Well, yeah, mostly driven by NIMBY, but. I, I just want to I want to push on this a little bit because I've, I've had a number of discussions with people about this because my contention is really that homes now because we've financialized homes right really like most homes are bought at like five to ten percent down and so they end up basically being like a long duration bond right so the question being if rates go from two percent to three percent to three percent to four percent to four percent who is the marginal buyer of homes. And what what price are they what price are they going to be able to pay given the um, amortization costs of their work of the mortgage that they're able to secure at, you know, sub- at, at three and four and five percent interest rates. Right. Like to me, it seems like and, and, and you know, if you go back to the 1970s, real estate actually was was a, not such a good asset for inflation hedging. Right. Like. Uh, if you look at the real estate indices, they didn't even hold up against inflation, yeah. possibly, and and the leverage ratios on real estate in the seventies were a fraction of what they are today. Like that, r- real estate just wasn't. You weren't able to get ninety percent loan to value um, structures for buying yeah. homes. In but the again, States. you know, to right to kind of go back to the
4: you know the whole nobody knows nothing you know, thought process, like, uh, yeah, I, I think there is, you know, like Americans especially or anybody in the developed world really has been sort of spoiled by what's happened with real estate. I saw the craziest chart the other day. I had to do like a double, triple check on the data source showing Japanese residential real estate for the last 30 years. And it is unbelievable. It basically went up in 1990 and it has just gone like this it fell for 4 yeah. years yeah it's yeah. it's like and I, I turned to my wife when i when i saw it and i was like you got to see this chart this is a fucking unbelievable statistic that i had never seen and to you know, imagine that happening in the united states and you know what that that would be like if that played out and so Look, yeah, to you're that, right. Your maybe real estate will be an awful inflation hedge in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, but that
1: the biggest one of the, the biggest spend on a household is rent or mortgage, right? So if it ends up being a deflationary item, then that portion of if you're a renter, if it if real estate goes down and you're a renter, rent will also go down with that deflation, right? If you own And prices go up, then you're you're the same. You own the house, right? Maybe some property prices go up. But if you're a renter, that's going up. That's going to be a big line item cost. So I see the if housing inflation is a problem and it's your biggest expense and absolutely uh, housing can be a big hedge against that big spend 100 percent. I can see that. Um, but it, you know, the, the, thing that we have to ask is what is inflation, right? Like is inflation housing prices going up? I mean, it's just such a
3: complex what's your bet topic, size? right? The, the challenge is that, that it represents this massive bet in people's portfolios, right? They end up with this levered huge proportion of their wealth invested in this ultra long duration asset. They're trying to hedge shelter inflation which i get that's a fair point but they take on such a massive amount like the size of the asset on their balance sheet yeah representing that in that that shelter inflation that is so important relative to all of the other types of risks that they face
4: well and the other thing is a house is a huge pain in the ass like if you applied like a real expense ratio to a house it's I would argue it's got to be the most expensive thing anybody owns. I mean, after you back out taxes and like, like I built my house and it was as much fun as I had, like learning how to do framing and drywall, actually framing was horrible, but a lot of the other stuff was pretty fun. Um, it's a, a brutally painful process. And so like, I thought I was like being all smart, like getting this great deal on a teardown in a good location. and I paid for this house in all sorts of like non-quantifiable ways that people, you know, when they buy and sell a home, they typically remember the two numbers that oh, I bought my house for, you know, 500,000 and I sold it for a million. And so I made 500,000 and you forget that, you know, you fixed 20 toilets over the course of 10 years and spent, you know, $250,000 in renovations and or just upkeep and oh yeah, you spent you know, another, you know, hundred grand and the mortgage along the way. And you paid, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in taxes over all those years. And so you back out all this stuff and like the real, real return isn't that great. And I would argue if you if you're involved in a house that's really like, you know, manual, requires a lot of manual upkeep. Um, like it's an even worse investment yeah. because. This was
1: this was years ago, but I remember seeing, I think it was a Schiller index. I can't can't remember. It was like, what is the actual real return on real estate all in? And it was about the rate of inflation, right? Yeah. It's because
4: that's. I think Thornburg, it's like Thornburg said, Investments published something that did a really good study on that.
3: But yeah, <laughs> even so, the dumb thought
4: of. I pull I weeds remember. on the weekends and I'm like, I fucking hate this house. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So, so
2: there's a lot of are, right? Our homes, like like Dave Natick brings up a, a good point. Like demographics are, I think, a pretty good Yeah, I right. want
3: to argue this. Yes. Yeah. Okay, 100%, go, 100%, ahead. yeah go ahead. Go ahead. Well, but it's not just Dave. There's a lot of people saying there's no yeah, way real estate's going to go down. The Japanese yeah, Japan case study is, great, is flawed because Well,
2: it's a great well, Japan, example. It was a high price. The birth rates
3: but in Japan you, have, have correct. Go ahead. Were very low and they're anti immigration, right? They're very ethnocentric. So I hear, I feel like you just described parties. what the United States has become kind of though. <laughs> becoming, yeah. becoming for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and we've definitely seen a massive reduction in, um, immigration and a huge reduction in the birth rate. And I do wonder about the reflexive nature of the fact that you've got this whole generation of millennials who are coming of age and to the point where they want to start a family, looking around at every major urban center with any sort of growth or attractive um, job characteristics and saying, I can't fucking afford to live here. And I'm not going to be a fucking debt slave in order to live in downtown, you know, San Diego, LA, New York, Chicago, etc. And looking at all the technology that's available to them to provide a job that doesn't
1: We didn't want to hear what you had to say anyway. Can you, can you hear me, Colin?
4: Yeah, we, we okay, lost Okay,
1: you're Adam. muted, buddy. Um, yeah, I guess we lost that. Yeah, anyway. Oh,
3: There's well. options that allow Damn. them to, to, to not have to live. I know, I just kept talking, Damn so it. maybe it recorded. Um, <laughs> that allow them to not have to live downtown, not be held hostage to the commute. Right, which is the major driver of why downtown real estate has been such a massive driver of wealth creation over the last couple of decades, and at the same time, you've got um, potentially interest rates rising, so that you know even if there is still demand, um, the next generation can't afford to buy the homes at the prices that the boomers need to sell them at in order to make, to make good on their um, mortgage. And also what about the potential for the implementation of high density housing, right? Where, you know, we just completely, like what also happened in Japan is that single family homes went the way of the dodo in the mid 1990s and they built all this high density housing in Tokyo, which is why Tokyo currently houses, 50 to 60 million people, right? So there's a lot of different things. I can see a lot of different reasons why we could have a very different housing market trajectory over the next 20, 30 years than we've observed over the last 20, to 30 years, demographics notwithstanding. And I think the assumption of the demographic trajectory continuing in the same direction is also very small.
1: Looks like we're all in violent agreement. Yeah, I agree. It's all, it's very complex. So Colin, here's a question I have for you. I, cause I don't know much about, you said you have your global market portfolio and then depending on the client, you kind of explore. I, my whole career has been about trying to get advisors to, to think about an alternative sleeve, right? Why is, first of all, do you use alternatives and why is it the, do you think that most advisors just simply don't bother anymore?
4: I mean, honestly, I think the narratives around them have become a little bit toxic, probably in large part guided by the sort of vanguard type trends that we've seen where anything that's remotely high fee or chasing alpha is viewed as something that doesn't add value. Um, So people have kind of deferred towards this really simplistic asset allocation style that um, may or may not suit them best in the next, um, you know, 10, 20 years. I mean, I think in terms of like customization, um, I mean, I, I think that everyone can benefit from having certain sleeves of customization that make things, um, you know, improve, like, I mean like using like a simple 6040 like I think the vast majority of people as as fine as a 6040 is I think the vast majority of people can benefit greatly from deviating from a 6040 and doing things that you know within some sort of personalized range of of customization is you know adding value in very specific ways depending on what their personal needs are so um I'm totally not against, you know, especially like, like I've become a big advocate of, of just core and satellite strategies, where your core maybe is this very boring, um, just broadly diversified component. But then you're doing all sorts of things on the on the peripheral components there with the satellites, where you're sexing it up a little bit and you're you're kind of hedging for, you know, what if 6040 does as badly as a lot of people expect it to do in the next 20 years.
1: Right. And, and you, the discipline fund, um, I don't know if you can talk about it or not, but I don't think we're allowed to talk about anything in this business. Uh, is, is the core, uh, basically, is that the, the idea there?
3: Global market portfolio. Yeah. Is it's a global market portfolio. It, it's, it's not a global
4: market portfolio, but it's, um, what I'm, what I, To be honest, what what my whole methodology really does and the whole concept of what I call counter-cyclical rebalancing or counter, counter-cyclical indexing, the whole concept is basically it's devised around taking something like a 60-40 and, or like a 50-50, depending on whatever your benchmark is, and applying a, a little bit of like a risk parity type concept to it where you're still maintaining this very diversified, low-fee, simple portfolio, but you're not just lazily invested in the, you know, the 85% volatility of the, of the 60% equity slice. And so you're, you know, to me, because all of this is so behavioral-based, I think that people People need or a lot of people should try to control the equity risk in their portfolio more so, especially in crazy times like right now, because it's so, you have so much disproportionate risk inside of that component that, mm-hmm. you know, applying like a risk parity approach, even, you know, regardless of how sophisticated it is. I mean, there's very stupid ways to do risk parity, as you guys know, Um but there's very, very sensible ways to do it. And to me, wait, that wait, what is it? Approach. What does he mean by that?
2: <laughs> what is it, what like, we say? know all the dumb ways to do asperity. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Um, <laughs> Continue. <laughs> <laughs>
4: No, no, no. I, lo- I, I love the way you guys do risk parity. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm I have crazy. specific, I have very specific firms in mind that I oh, will yeah. not mention. I think we all know you're referring in, to. Yeah. I yeah. Very
2: well, I think way, the but. other thing on the fee thing, on the fee idea is to think about your total portfolio fee. Not to say this is seven basis points and that's 2%, so I can do zero of 2% yeah. if it's this very unique uh, uh in uh, uh, return stream that actually is non-correlated and hedges some of these equity risks that you're you're highlighting. No it's to say well if we add them, what's the benefit to the total portfolio and does it out uh, uh, netweigh the the, the fee adjusted overall portfolio cost total right so if you've got seven basis points on 60 or 70 percent of the portfolio, and 30% of the portfolio has a higher fee but it is very complementary your overall fee is yeah. you know 60 basis points that's that's compelling 100%
4: yeah i mean a lot of people you know weirdly won't look at things like that where they you know they'll kind of just arbitrarily look at like a tail risk hedging fund for instance and say oh this costs you know 100 basis points I don't buy stuff that expensive. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not really the way you're supposed to use that thing. You use the, you know, tail risk hedging component as like a small sleeve of it that provides you some, you know, tail risk protection, but in the aggregate of your portfolio is not adding more than like, who knows, five to 10 basis points of actual overall added expense. And I think a lot of people look at stuff and they say, You know, like I see this with people talking about a lot of ETFs and, you know, really creative and innovative new products where people look at it in solitude and they say, this thing sucks because its fee is too high. And I don't do that because John Bogle told me that I should only buy things that cost 25 bips or lower.
1: I think the regulators have done poor messaging on the having to defend your 1% or having to defend why you're allocating to higher cost products and then advisors feeling like they can't or they won't or they don't just don't want the hassle right so it's certainly that's part of it as well i think but certainly the zeitgeist the the beta is the only thing because we've been we've had 10 years of nothing but upside for u.s equities and u.s bonds right um is you can create a portfolio at 15 basis points and feel like with a sharp of what is it one and a bit for a balanced portfolio in the U.S. and the 99th percentile historical sharp ratio and yeah. feel like you're done. Like why? How can everything yeah. you're showing me, everything that's higher cost, slap a back cap from the
4: greatest bond bull market ever, and it looks like a no brainer.
2: Yeah, so well, it's, it's just like, a
4: really, it's a really tough. Day.
2: Yeah, and it how how can they though? How and this is like how can the individual investor? understand with the, the limited uh, financial knowledge that they might have uh, the difference in the advisor they're talking to. So one advisor says, hey, Bogle, seven basis points, 60, 40. Here's the 10-year back test or here's the 10-year result. And then look over here, here's the diversified portfolio and then you as an advisor go in and say, well, here's the portfolio that you should probably look at to hedge these risks in a bespoke way, in a thoughtful way, given your certain circumstances. And you're competing with an advisor that's saying, no, no, that's too high fee. And look, it underperforms. And and so how is the individual investor supposed to be able to uh, work their way through that? I mean, it's a really tough, tough thing for it's hard. for for the individual investor problem. to suss these things out. Yeah. How do, you, how do you deal for, with that or how do you find dealing with that
4: i mean it's it's hard in large part because I, and i do try to adhere to the idea that simple is better um just because you know you can get brain damage making these things so complex like i see a lot of portfolios where you know people own 20 30 etfs or something and i'm like holy cow like what you know, how did you get into this mess? Because you, def- <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you can definitely. You can, you know, you guys know you can way
2: overdo this stuff. Sure. Um, well, and you and, and the, any kind of rebalancing premium you might get is harder and harder the more pieces of the puzzle you include. And if you're in a retail environment, it's harder and harder to rebalance them in an appropriate way. Um, trading and all possible. Yeah. 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 Yeah, but it's one of the things that, you know, it's actually one of the
4: things that's exciting, though, about the ETF space in particular is that the costs have come down so much with all of this stuff that there's now really this weird sort of gray area between what we used to talk about as active and passive, where now a lot of the stuff that's active is so low fee and accessible that it's really compelling to own Inside of a broader portfolio, so I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty excited about everything that I see going on. In you know, I, I'm a big fan of of low fee stuff and all that. You know, I'm I'm not a bogle head by any means, but like I I think that it's probably more right than wrong to follow a, a methodology similar to that. Um, but I'm super excited about a lot of the stuff that's going on in our industry because. Not only is it all becoming so much more democratized, but some of the stuff that's coming out that, you know, from these ETF firms is is really, really useful stuff that is not that expensive. And so it is very, you know, Boglehead like without the, you know, the sort of legacy costs that we're all we're used to from like, you know, seeing like a, a Merrill Lynch you know, mutual fund or something like that, or a fidelity fund mm-hmm.
3: or whatever. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Awesome.
4: There's
3: some neat innovation too in the ETF space that um, provides a lot more flexibility in terms of the types of portfolios that you could buy. So you could sort of have your cake and eat it too. So you can have that sort of basic 60 40, your kind of global market portfolio. And then so you get that 100%. And then you can layer some other stuff on top that may provide a little extra bonus. Um, in the event that the sixty forty return trajectory plays out, like, I think everybody on this call is concerned that it might. Right. Um, yeah. so from that perspective, definitely that, that innovation is, is, uh, empowering investors to take control of their own futures, which is kind of fun. Yeah. All right. right. We're at 90 minutes. We covered yeah. a lot of cover, a lot of ground. It was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Next time you got to bring a rum, that's the rule. The coffee's not going to come because yeah. you know, we're operating at a disadvantage. Coffee's but, out. Actually, I don't know it's if it's an too, advantage or a disadvantage. 2.30,
2: yeah.
3: so I can start drinking, right? That's right. Yeah, On a Friday? For sure. Is this
2: the first time the in your life that you had a drink at anything later than 2.30? Really? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes,
4: sir.
2: <laughs> yes, officer. Officer. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks. amount of tell, yeah, can, oh, yeah can where, can where before can we, we go, you? just tell everybody where, where they can find you, uh, where they can find the discipline funds, the, your research, your Twitter handle, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. Twitter is just Cullen Roach, one word. Um, Prag
4: caps really pragmatic capitalism. My website is really like kind of the place where I just sort of vomit all of my thoughts into the, <laughs> into the world. Um, and that kind of, it kind of feeds off into everything that I do, whether it's Twitter or, you know, my research papers or my, my company and stuff. So that's, that's probably the best spot. But um, I love trying to, you know, like field questions from people and strangers. And, you know, I love, I love helping and trying to educate wherever I can. I mean, so much of my work is really like very education focused just because there is I think, I mean, a lot of bad narratives out there. And so um, even if I can help somebody understand, you know, something really mundane, like quantitative easing, I, you know, I'm enough of a dork that I love, love interacting with people on stuff like
3: that. Nothing mundane about that, man. Nothing mundane at all. Um, No, that's awesome. Um, Love it. Also, a huge thanks to everybody who chimed in today. Really enjoyed the comments. Um, I read them all. Tried. We tried to weave in uh, a lot of the themes that everybody brought up and some really good questions and comments. So thanks, everyone, for the engagement. Please like and share so we can get more guests like Colin on the show um, for these kinds of kinds of chats. So uh, thanks yeah. for showing up, and we'll hit, see you next time. Hit pound
2: week. star into the comments if you learned something. I would stop. Is that a new thing? That a new thing? Oh, what's going on? Okay. It's I'm, a I'm secret kidding.
3: code. <laughs> you don't have to do that. I'm messing around. All
4: right. Signing off. guys. Yeah. Thank you right. so much. All right. Great talking to you all.
1: Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investors If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.